Okay, last week I set a really bad precedent when I decided that we were going to, uh, when I gave the title before we even began. So this time I'm going to read a source which will give the conclusion and uh, before we begin, and then uh, once having the conclusion, we'll work a little bit backwards. It's Rav uh, Tzaduk, and it's completely appropriate, as I'll explain as we move on. Rav Tzaduk, Rav Tzaduk from Lublin, Rav Tzaduk HaKohen, Rav Tzaduk HaKohen HaGadol. Rav Tzaduk had a great deal of, uh, of impact and influence on subsequent thinkers, some by quoting him and some not quoting him. And uh, what's interesting about Rav Tzaduk is that as a young man, he was what you would call today a Litvak or a Misnagid, and then at some point along the way he came under the influence. Ukivriyato shel olam b'reisha. Now, what's important about this and what's, because uh, we're like, we're like Erev Hanukkah right now, is so we're going to have a little bit of darkness, a little bit of light. Can you uh, please close out of the door? Too much noise. Ukivriyato shel olam b'reisha chashucha... Originally, when the world was created, the first there was darkness and then there was light. And now he's quoting uh, actually a verse from Tehillim, Perak Yudchet, Pasuk Yudbet. And Ktiv, it really should be in the sense of Viktiv and Ktiv. So you have darkness and you have light, but there's another thing that it says there, and that is the, the Spirit of God, Ruach Elohim, is hovering. Merachefet, I'll translate as hovering. And this Ruach Elohim, which is in a sense the, the Ruach, the Spirit of the will of God, and the one who's going to bring about, to facilitate that the will of God will be actualized in this world, will be the role of Mashiach, and it understands that Ruach Elohim Mashiach is there. So you have, you have light, you have darkness, you have light, and you have uh, the spirit of Mashiach. Bereshach Hashuch, originally there's darkness, Haya, Nishmat Er. That's Er Vaone. The, the soul of Er was one of darkness. Vahadu Nahura, Peretz. And then light came, and that's Peretz. Now, those of you who don't remember, in Lachadodi, one of the words that you don't know what it means, who's Ben Partsi, Ben, Par- ben Partsi is, is talking about Mashiach. Uh, so that, that's important to understand, that when, when you say Ben Partsi, the, the descendant of, of Peretz, what you're talking about is the Davidic line, which is going back to Yehuda via Peretz, but that's, it, it, Ben Partsi is a reference to Mashiach, so he says there's, there's, there's darkness, which is air, and, then, and, and he dies, and then he sins, and he dies, and then Peretz emerges, and that's the light, and that's, that's the light but that is the spirit of Mashiach, Shahaya Nishmat Mashiach Mamash, Vizeya tikunoshel er, chibi vizehu sha'amar nolad goel ha'acharon. So you say, hold it, how in the world do we just now get to Mashiach? And then he continues and he says, Vyosef yarad lemitzrayim, vinit barer naase merkava lemidat tzadik yesod olam ayedeha nisayon, vuhu yivarer kol yisrael vamchakulam tzadikim. Yosef goes down to Egypt, and when Yosef goes down to Egypt, he's going to create a clarification, or it's going, that, that's the, the birur, it's a clarification, or it is really going to be the foundation of this concept of tzaddik. So Yosef is called a tzaddik, although never in Chumash, and even the reference in Navi is arguable, b'michrat tzaddik avor na'alayim, so assuming that that is talking about Yosef, and, but he's referred to many times in rabbinic literature as Yosef HaTzadik, Yosef. So what makes him a tzadik? So more than anything else, Yosef's tzitkut is related to his refusal to fall to the seduction of Eshet Potiphar. And, and it's interesting because in rabbinic literature, if he uses the word chet without any other qualification, sin, chet, chet means a sexual sin. Don't ask me why, but that's more often than not, chait without any other qualification is talking about sexual sin. And tzaddik is interesting because Yosef is a tzaddik. So what did he do? I can say Avim's a tzaddik. He did chesed. I can say, you know, like all kinds of people at tzaddikim. But it's Yosef who withstands that kind of temptation. V'yosef yorad l'mitzrayim v'nitbarer sh'na'asem merkava. So that becomes a merkava, of course, is a spiritual elevator which allows people to go up into heaven. The Merkava is the flying chariot, the chariots of fire. It's the chariot that goes up into heaven, and he becomes the Merkava, 
Lamidat Tzadik Yisod Olam, which is also interesting because Yosef goes riding off in the in the Merkava. So if we were really exploring this idea, right, Paro gives him a Mer- right. Uh, not Amerikava. He has he has his chariot. So if we were interested in this, we would go look and see what Tzadik has to say about Yosef. And, and next week's parasha, receiving his uh, his chariot. But Yosef becomes the chariot, which again for us is a spiritual elevator, not so different from perhaps the the ladder of Yaakov, which which is interesting, the same kind of thing. Is that to go from the ground and to go up into the clouds? And Elo told that Yaakov Yosef, and never happens to. Yaakov then later on will happen to Yosef, and Yosef becomes this Merkava, Lemidat Tzadik Yesod Olam, to the Tzadik who is the foundation of the world. Al Yidei Hanisayon, because of the temptation, the test that he went through, and he then creates this idea of Tzitkut in all of Am Yisrael, as it says, So where does this come from that all of Am Yisrael is considered to be Tzadikim? It's because of Yosef. Yosef created that for Klai Yisrael. To call man de et gazer ikrit tzadik, for Klai Yisrael nekru al shmo she'erit Yosef. Ukamo she'amru. That all Jews are called upon Yosef, she'erit Yosef. The remainder Jews are Yosef. And you have shul sometimes called she'erit Yosef. And it's because we are all connected to Yosef. V'chein beparashazo inyan Yehuda. Shehuda. And something else happens in this parasha, and that is Yehuda who makes an admission. Now, that's not a mistake or, or something which isn't deliberate. Yehuda makes an admission. So Yehuda was named when his mother thanked God. And, and you know, we're getting up to Hanukkah now also, the idea of thanks, or yeah, Thanksgiving today, if you will. But, um, and that's why they eat turkey. Hodu Hashem kitov. So the idea of uh, of being thankful, hodu. So Leah is thankful, and she is modeh, modat la, la Kaddish Baruch Hu at this point. But Yehud, just because you named something doesn't mean that you've deserved your name. So Yehud at some point is going to grow into his name. Of uh, But it's interesting because what he does to achieve his name is not the thanks as much as the admission. He was modeh. He, he, he admitted something, and basically he admits guilt. And right there we should understand that there is this subtext that Rav Tzadok is telling us that we need to understand. But first let's complete the source, and then we'll try to explain it. V'yotza bat mimen, and then a bat comes out, and so on. V'hu u'mashiach mizar'o, and Yehuda and the Messiah who will come out from his descendants, of course, parrots and so on and so forth, Yivaruru kol Yisrael They're going to make this clarification or this foundation of the concept of tshuva. Shekol Yisrael nikol al Yehuda, and all Jews are called based upon Yehuda, where Yehudim. Ukamo sha'amru, as it says, and he makes this reference also to... Uh, Midrash Rabbah, V'zeh kol inyan parshazo. And that's everything you need to know about this parsha. <laughs> so uh, so I, I liked, obviously, that conclusion. This is all you need to know. So the truth is we really don't have to continue, but maybe we need to explain a little bit about what's going on. But, but he did create, he did set up, and he created this dichotomy, which is essential for us to understand, because what exactly is his dichotomy? Is that he sets up two types of leaders and two types of... Uh, of, of spiritual giants. And one type is Yosef, is the tzaddik, and the other is Yehuda, who's the Balchuva. And let's pause a moment for Bal, on, on the phrase Balchuva. The, the, the phrase Balchuva is overly used today. It's overly used in our generation. It's probably been that way since at least 1970. It would be interesting to uh, go back and look at the, the first time that people talked about a Balchuva movement. Obviously, that movement, I might say obviously, maybe it's not obvious to anyone else other than me, but obviously that movement is not really a movement of Bali Tshuva. Somebody, in order to be Tshuva, to do Tshuva, has to be somebody who knows what's right, knows what's wrong, chooses to do something which is wrong, and the vast majority of the generations of people who've called themselves Bali Tshuva it's a very inexact term because it's not that they did tshuva as much because they really, to a great extent, were not responsible for the sins. 
somebody's raised in a home where there's no Shmirat Shabbat, there's no Kashrut, and there's no other aspects of Jewish life which are being practiced, then how in the world can I say that you're a sinner? That person's not a sinner. They're not requiring tshuva. There's somebody who becomes recalibrated. There's somebody who becomes educated. There's somebody... The, the, yeah, but, but that's what I'm saying. It's, it's not tshuva, I would call... I mean, again, I wanted to make up a new term for this. I wanted to call them nouveau frum, but that never... That never <laughs> I thought it sounded much better, but that never... But, but, that, but, that, but that, that is not caught on yet. It it, uh, it 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 perhaps will, but uh, you know you you have too many authorities. And again, I could just pick out the Rambam to the Chazonish to uh, and, and and all kinds of others in between who have identified. No, there's such a thing as somebody who is called a uh, Tinuk Shanishba, somebody who was again literally Tinuk Shanishba, somebody who was kidnapped and then was brought up with no Jewish knowledge. So the Rambam writes he applies Tinuk Shanishba to all kinds of people who were raised in the homes of the Karaites, for example. That was his historical example. But uh, to have uh, generations now of Jews who've been brought up without any Jewish knowledge, and then they become you know, more connected to tradition, it's probably, at least in my mind, technically at least, it's inappropriate to call them Balei Tshuva, if that's what they want to call themselves, who am I going to argue? But Yehuda's a different case. Which means the, the, the problem of Yehuda's sin is far more profound. And it's not Yehuda's sin. It's Yehuda's sins which are involved. Which means it, it, it's, in a certain extent, what you have over here, and, and I'm not going to go now into the whole background, even though I think the background is quite important, but there, there is this break in the Jewish community, which it, it, it's a fissure. It's, it's, a, it's like in geology, where you have a, uh, a place where an earthquake is more likely to, to hit, it's a fault. So what we have here is a fault in the Jewish community, not fault in the sense of responsibility, but fault in the sense that this is a place that, which is likely or susceptible to the problem. And, and, and what is it? The fault actually ultimately will come down to the Rachel and Leah divide. And that's why it's complicated when you have four wives at once, okay? not necessarily advisable to, uh, to go that route. And Yaakov never chose that. And when you begin to read what happens in this parsha, and it's interesting, because two voices are obviously do come out, and each one's suggestion is more horrific than the other. And then there are two other voices that we don't know who it was, but Chazal tell us who it was. Which means when it says, I mean, if we'll get way ahead of ourselves now, if we'll uh, take a look in uh, source number two, Pasuk Yutet, one man said to his brother, so who is Ish and who is Achiv? So Chazal then tells, oh, that's Shimon and Levi. Which, of course, they then contemplate the murder of Yosef. If it's Shimon and Levi, you, of course, recognize why that would be. They, it's the same area. They're in Shechem. And the last time that they had a problem, they solved it by... Uh, by, by killing people, and unfortunately, once you solve your problems by killing people, maybe that then becomes this possibility within your minds, and let's let's solve this problem as well. The the others who do speak very clearly, the one who responds to that is Ruvain, and then the one who responds to that is Yehuda, which means then if we're not mistaken, you now have Ruvain, Shimon, Levi, and Yehuda, which now there is a common denominator over there, and that common denominator, of course, are the children of Leah. So therefore, now what you realize is that the battle lines over here are between the children of Leah and between the son of, uh, of Rachel. Now, the, the tragedy involved in all of this you know, it, it almost leads to murder, which again in our minds is unthinkable. As much as, you know, Asav, you know, we, we vilify. Even Asav, you know, he thinks it, he doesn't even say it, and when my father's dead, their father is still alive, which means in, in a certain way, what takes place over here is worse than the behavior of Asav, and that's something which is really difficult for us to uh, understand. And, and, and Yehudas may be the most cynical of them all when he says, you know, why murder him? He's our flesh and blood. Let's sell him. Which means that that, that recognition, again, if, when you read the words over here, let's take a look at, uh, at Yehuda. 
פוסק אבו ויום יהודה אל אחיו, מה בצע? בצע זה אפילו גרוע. Can you imagine how this has been used by anti-Semites through the ages? Betza, you have to say when, you, you, when you're making a motion of money in your hands. What are we going to gain financially from this? And he says, oh, let's turn this into a win-win. What are we going to gain by killing our brother? So there's this recognition he's our brother. Right? Let's all go sell him to the Yishmaelim. He's our brother. He's our flesh and blood. Okay, let's sell him. I mean, there's something horrific about this. I, I, I have mentioned in the past, and as far as I know, I'm the only one who's ever said it, and I'm right. Sorry that I say that, and I'm right. And that is that the fact that it was the Ishmaelim who've come by, and Ishmael is the rejected, and that was Sarah said, you know, send him away. So therefore, oh, look, this is a sign from heaven, which is, of course, very interesting how one interprets signs from heavens. And right afterwards, the Midianim come, and Midianim as well are a son of Avraham who are sent away. So as far as Yehud is concerned, this is the will of God, which, which means having a jaundiced heart actually prevents you from properly understanding when God gives you messages. And in fact, if you go now a little bit further to the story of Tamar, where after Yehud's first son dies, how does he remain so callous? When I say callous, in terms of his father. Now he knows what it's like to lose a child. And I would suspect that almost anybody else in the world, that they've caused their father to think they lost a child, and now they really lose a child. How can they not then go back and say, I now know what it feels, I know that pain, I know what it's like. How could Yehud at that point not go back to his father and say, listen, Yosef's not necessarily dead. We sold him. He's in Egypt. I will spend the rest of my life to try to bring him back. I'm saying, if, if actually, you know, the text was written by Jews, you, you know, this whole issue in terms of Bible criticism and so on, who are the authors over here? If this was written by Jews, then uh, I don't know who would have put such anti-Semitic thing, meaning either God dictates this or it's an anti-Semite. Because you have Yehuda in terms of Mabetza. Yehuda really, now just think about this, acting like Judas. That, that's exactly the issue where Judas comes from. It's based upon Yehuda. There's, there's no question about that. Getting rid of your righteous brother over here, I'm saying there, there's certainly that theme underneath. Again, realize this, that Christianity absolutely tried to constantly build a narrative which was following Jewish traditions and Jewish ideas. But how, aside from that terrible action then, how can Yehuda then... And then he loses a second son. At, at which point, do you, you want to say it's karma? I mean, how do you sleep at night? How, how, how do you not realize that God is now micromanaging and getting involved in your life and he's going to hold you accountable? So I'm saying when Yehuda will end, eventually be described as a Balchuva, I'm not talking about somebody who was a Tinuk Shanishba and never heard anything about putting on tefillin and then some Chabadnik on the street comes over and says, oh, you want to put on tefillin? He puts on tefillin and he becomes a Balchuva. That's not what we're talking about over here. We're talking about somebody who's raised in Yaakov's house who has total recognition, cognition, that this is your brother, right? You don't kill your brother because it's not going to be financially, you know, acceptable. Let's not kill him because he's our brother. Let's sell him instead. I mean, I'm saying the behavior of Yehuda is so horrific. It's so bad. But eventually he does become this other individual, which, which is part of what this story is going to be about. So that, that's something which we need to recognize is essentially we have two models over here. My, my son came back from yeshiva. This cup isn't happening either. My son came back from yeshiva, and uh, he said that, uh, that he learned in yeshiva a, a different message between the, the Yehuda <coughs> and Yosef divide. So he said the way it was presented by one of his rebbeim was that essentially Yosef is a Litvak, and uh, Yehuda is a chassid. So Yosef, everything's very organized, very exacting, and you have to do the mitzvot, you have to do everything in the right way, and Yehuda's a balagan. <laughs> He's a balagan that everything gets messed up, but again, Yosef is the midah, or in terms of Kabbalah, he's Yisod, Yisod is the foundation, tzadik Yisod olam, but Yehuda's malchus. And by the way, with malchus, there's sometimes all kinds of, uh, we'll call it collateral damage, but it's because there's a bigger you know, point over there, which of course can allow the first generation of Hasidim to say, okay, so I miss Mantfila, but, but, uh, but I'm going to dive in with more Kavana. No, see, a, a Litva can't do that. What do you mean you miss Mantfila? But it, that doesn't work that way. This is the time to daven. This is the time you have to daven. And uh, 
again, it was presented as uh, that's the Yosef personality versus the Yehuda personality. Uh, of course, we realize that these things have all you know, slight and partial truth to them, but not necessarily objective truth to them. I think reading in 18th century Ashkenazic sociological uh, groupings, which, by the way, were not in any way absolute, in, in, in any way. I mean, one of the things that when one actually considers the, histor- the history of this, and I can direct you to readings if you like, is that the Hasidic movement was probably not created until the attack against them, which means the attack came and, and, and attacked all kinds of people, and that threw them together. Like before that, there was no connection between them. So it wasn't you know, like, the, oh, these old students, the Baal Shem Tov, that was not necessarily the case. I'm saying historically. Some of the early, quote-unquote, Hasidic leaders had nothing to do with the Baal Shem Tov, but they were all attacked together, so therefore be careful who you attack because you may actually cause this group to exist because they all have that common denominator. But the, the lines were not absolute, and uh, I think that continues on until today. But nonetheless, it's interesting. I mean, again, the Hasid versus the, the Misnagid or the Balchuva versus the Tzaddik. These are interesting categories to read these things through, although I think we're far more sympathetic with the the way that Rav Tzaddik is is putting this. So what I want to try to do is to look at some of the broader issues in terms of uh, how we got here, what's taking place, the change within Yehuda, and, and some of this is some of this we've spoken about before, and some of this is very obvious, and some of this, and actually I would say a lot of it is is just really based upon midrashim. But we we can start with source number two, and source number two has a couple of elements to it. The and and, and the problem is if I start going into detail, we're never going to get out of the details because there's uh, there's too many details over here to deal with. But essentially, we have a situation. Eila told Yaakov. So in order to really understand that, you needed to go back and look at the Eilatodot Esav and just to read them one against the other and then you'll realize how strange this is. Eilatodot Esav, right? Esav is Edom. Eilatodot Yaakov, which should say Yaakov is Yisrael. And then it says that Esav married this and this and this and had this and this and this and all these kids. And Eilatodot Yaakov Yosef. And that, and that itself should be jarring and that itself should tell you a, a certain aspect of how Yaakov looks at the world. Eila toldot Yaakov Yosef. Now, despite that, despite that feeling, Yaakov never allows the family to fall apart, which means what, what Reuven does, what Shimon and Levi do, what Yehuda does, and again, how much he'll end up knowing, nonetheless, again, if I, if I said that the plot to kill Yosef was worse than Esav, what Reuven actually did was worse than anything that Yishmael was accused of. So I'm saying the behavior of Yaakov's children, I said in the previous year, look at the Aserah uh, Hadibrod and how many were they guilty of, right? And uh, it, it's, it's something which is frightening, but nonetheless, that's what it says. Eila told it Yaakov Yosef, and there's no question that Yaakov sets up this situation. It, it, it's his doing, and I, the way that Chazal articulate this, then they blame him. And they say, oh, he never should have bought the coat. Look, because he bought the coat, look how the family disintegrated. But that's not true. I'm sorry. I, I'm not, please don't misunderstand me. When I say that Chazal is not true, I'm saying that's not the whole picture. That is a, a wonderful way of pinpointing an expression of the problem, but the problem's right here. Eila told it Yaakov Yosef. That's the problem. When it continues and says, or Elu told Yaakov, Yosef ben Shvasre Shana, Hayaro Echav Batson. His brothers are shepherds, but he shepherds his brothers. So therefore, and again, you get to that next scene afterwards, all of his brothers are out working as shepherds, but Yosef is sent to check up what's going on. And when we could right, Yaakov sends him, please tell me what's going on. Again, if we're not sure about that or we or we don't recall that. Which means the situation that Yosef reports directly to his father is one where his father, not, not, not just that it's okay, that's what he tells him to do, that's what he wants. And now you go backwards and you read, and it says, again, this one big Pasuk bet, 
Eilu toldot Yaakov, Yosef ben Shvazrei Shana, hayaroet achav betzon, vuhunar et bnei Bilav bnei Zilpa, nishei aviv, there's so much in that that needs to be unpacked, v'yavei Yosef at divatam ra'ah el avihim, and he brings back reports to his father. So you can say, okay, what kind of kid is this Yosef saying lashon hara? No. His father appointed him to this role. They are shepherds and he shepherds them. Why? Because Yosef is in charge. Why? And again, it's not nice to say Yosef is the only son he ever really wanted. That was the plan. Okay, maybe you could say that Rachel wanted Binyamin, but the only son he really wanted was Yosef. And by the way, go a little bit further. If you're Reuven, you were conceived when your father thought that he was with Rachel and your whole birth is based upon a rape, which is not politically correct to say, because men, of course, never get sexually abused, right? If it were the other way around, where there was a lack of informed consent, right? There was no consent on Yaakov's part to be with Leah, and, she, and therefore just think about Reuben walking around through life knowing that it's not just that your father doesn't love your mother, your father never really wanted you, you were the product of something which was... And again, you can argue and debate with me how much any of them knew, and my suspicion is that all of them knew everything. And I, and I don't think that the action that Ruvain takes with Bilha is disconnected to this. I think that the, the perceived... Uh, his perception of who he was and what he was may very much have led into that, but it's actually connected to this, to this verse and, and will help give the background to what's taking place. And that is because... Again, let's go back. Which it sounds to me as if he kids around and he's friendly with the Bnei Bilha Bnei Zilpa, which actually will cause all kinds of fallout, which you, we need to recognize. I'll come back to that in a second. But what is, how does it describe them as Nishay Aviv? When we have the outrage that Reuven goes and sleeps with Bilha, how is that described? That he climbs in the bed with Bilha, and he calls her Pilegesh. So therefore, the attitude of Ruvain is that she is a Pilegesh, and then for, therefore, by extension, these children are not real brothers. They, they are on this lower rung, if on a rung at all. So therefore, in Ruvain's worldview, there is Yosef, who, by the way, is a problem, because he's the favorite son of the real wife, and that's a problem. And what Reuven is doing by sleeping with Pilegish Aviv is very close to what Adonayahu tries to do in terms of taking the Pilegish of his father in order to establish himself as the future king, which is essentially what Reuven is trying to do over here. On the, on, on the other hand, Yaakov chooses Yosef because Yosef is the only one that really matters. It's not just that he loved Rachel the, the most. It's, it's, it's much more than that. Now you realize what Yosef did and uh, and you could decide if this is good or bad, but it, it makes no difference. What, what Yosef did is he incorporated his father's, ultimately his father's perspective, and I have 12 sons. The, the Pasuk, I don't, I don't recall if we have it over here or not, but the, the Pasuk that describes the outrage of, uh, of Ruvain, Lamed Hei Kafbet, now, one of the things we always need to be paying attention to, especially now, moving forward, is when he's referred to as Yaakov and when he's referred to Yisrael. So Yisrael is the national identity. That's very important. And Yisrael hears. So this is all on a national level. So I'm saying again, when I say that this is Ruven's play to be able to be the one who will be king, I think that's very clear. And then what's the continuation of the same pasuk? It's a new chapter. It's a new. It's, there's a pay over here, so it, it's like you hit enter on the computer, but it's still part of the same pasuk. But Yaakov which means Yaakov, the children of Yaakov. There's twelve. There's twelve sons, which means Yaakov will not allow the family to break up, even though he should, or he could, or maybe someone else would but that's something which he won't do. So now you realize Ruvain is making this play in terms of this Israel side, I will be the future leader and I'm the oldest and that's my role. And by the way, right afterwards, when it, when it gives, tells us who they are, who are the sons, it says, B'nai Leah, Bechor Yaakov Ruvain. And it still goes out of the way to say he's the Bechor, which means Yaakov's perspective is phenomenal. 
that he just did something which is outrageous, but he's not willing to chase him away. But now you go back over here, so, and, and now I'm going to say it again. Just think about the politics. Ruvain perceives himself as being the firstborn, and therefore his role is to be the one who's most important. And Yosef over here shows up, but what? Elo told Yaakov, Yosef. And Ruvain's not there. Worse than that, from Ruvain's perspective, okay, even if somehow I have to contend with Yosef, then there ultimately is, okay, the B'nai Rachel, the B'nai Leah, the B'nai Leah, the strongest group, there are six of them. And then afterwards, on the lowest rung, you would have the B'nai of the Shvachot, of Bila and Zilpa. What does Yosef do? He befriends them, and therefore he catapults them to, all, to equal. He treats them all the same. So part of the Midrashic background is that he hears the brothers, and that, that already you can hear from Reuven, who are making fun of the B'nai Bilha and B'nai Zilpa. And Yosef says, I'm not going to have any of this. And again, he's following his father. Elo told it to Yaakov Yosef. Just as Yosef, Yaakov looks, I have 12 sons, not, not two and six and four. I have 12 sons. Yosef does the same thing. But of course, Yosef is going to pay. I mean, ultimately, Yosef brings the whole family together. And how so? During the sale of Yosef, they all become unified because they're witnesses. They're, they're part of the conspiracy. But... but Except for Benjamin, but I'm saying the, the, the sons of Billa and Zilpah. That's what's interesting is during the sale, I'll say it again, Reuven speaks, Yehuda speaks, we think that Shimon and Levi speaks, so you have the first four of Leah's children speaking, but now if you're Billa and Zilpah's kids and you're watching, right, Don Naftali, God, Asher, you're watching, you're listening, so now whose side do you take? The moral thing to do would be to take Yosef's side and say, hold it, no, this was our friend, he's the one who gave us status, but now if you're a little cynical, they're about to get better status right now because by, by being involved in the sale, they will now become full conspirators and full brothers with the children of Leah, and therefore, isn't it wonderful how Yosef ultimately built, brings the whole family together by becoming the victim of them? Now, let, let, let's, that is all part of the background, the dynamic about what's taking place. But let, let's, again, tr- try to uh, do a little more. The sale itself, we know what happens. We, and and, and they, they actually say it right away, even though they're going to change the plan somewhat. When uh, in Pasuk Yutet, in, back in source number two, when it says, So you realize what really troubles them. It's not the code. It's the dream. The code itself is, is giving him malchut. I mean, that we see later on, a coat of many colors is used within David HaMelech's family. By Tamar it says that she wears a coat of uh, many colors. So therefore it's malchut. He wants to give Yosef malchut. And that, that should be very clear over here. And, but that's not, that's not the issue, even though the dreams maybe, again, are an expression of that. He said, what, you're all, we're all going to bow down to him? Like, what are you talking about? And they say, Let, and I, I do want to make another observation. If somebody came and told you that I had a dream, are you going to care? Okay, you had a dream. The only reason it really bothers them is that they probably suspect that it's true, or at least on some level. And it's not just they suspect that it's true, and they know that Yaakov believes this as well. And that, that, that's what really troubles them. I mean, it's the combination. It's Yaakov giving the code, but it's not just the code. It's Yaakov selecting Yosef. It's the role of Yosef. It's the role of Yosef as the overseer of, of, of the brothers, even though he's relatively uh, young compared to the others. And then he has this dream they believe, or they would like to believe, delusions of grandeur. But, uh, but of course, I think on some level they believe that it's true. And then they say, okay, here are these dreamers coming. Let's kill him. Now you see how the plan is well uh, thought out. We're going to throw him in one of the pits. And we'll say, some wild animal ate him. And let's see if the dreams will come true. So now you tell me, how, how troubled are they that the dreams may come true? They, they, they're essentially saying, let, let, let's stop this in any way. And Ruvain then, his plan is, let's not commit murder. Rather, let's create a situation where he will die of quote-unquote natural means. That all happens until Yehuda sees the Ishmaelim and comes up with his plan. And part of the plan then, I mean, by the way, they could have just left it. Again, I'm, I'm not that I'm necessarily planning any murders, but we're just thinking out loud right now. If you were the brothers, what would you do? What should you do? You should just go on your lives, come home. And father says, where's Yosef? I don't know, where's Yosef? He came looking for you. We never saw him. Why even admit that you saw him? Why be the last person to be in contact with him? Why to say we found his coat? But by the way, I think all this is, is anger. 
I think all of this has to do with that they, they, for them there may be something cathartic about the bloody coat in their hands because they do want to kill him. And, and, and that's a terrible thought because ultimately I think it, uh, it ruins the, the murder plan. You want to get away with this, sorry, you want to get away with this, don't put yourself, don't put the, don't put the bloody coat in your hands, right? Am I, I don't know, any of you ever served time in prison and have great experience with these things? I don't know. But, but just think about this a second. This is remarkable that that is actually what they do, is that they, they take the coat, they kill a goat, again, more catharsis over here, they kill a goat, they dip, the, they dip it in blood, they bring it to the father, and they show the, the, the father. So there's actually two directions to go right now. One direction to go is in the past, and the other direction is to go in the future. So let, let's do the past first. And, and, and again, Chazal point all this out, is that, again, consider the irony that there's deception going on. And the deception is they're trying to fool their father. They're trying to, okay, deception of the father. And they're trying to fool the father with the clothing and they're trying to fool with, with the goat. So now just tell me a second. Did Yaakov ever get himself involved in deception of his father with clothing and with a goat? And what's the answer? Yes, 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 and yes. So that then becomes, that, that becomes much more interesting. So it... it, it when you say, like, okay, the hand of God is involved in all this, that Yaakov, in a certain sense, is paying a price, and you can't ignore that. You do, meaning, once you realize all this, you can't unthink this, and you, and, and you can't take that away. That Again, if you want to rephrase it and say, you know, if, you know, what did Yaakov ever do to deserve that his kids will end up deceiving him with the goat and with clothing and, and so on? Well, you know... Yaakov, just you know, think back a little bit. I'm saying that, and that becomes a very, uh, a, a very obvious and very, a very simple point. But so I'm saying that's one way. You want to go the other way. So then, what ends up happening between the story of uh, of Yehuda and Tamar is that again he loses one son and he loses a second son, and, and then he loses his wife. And, and it's actually the Torah is quite clear. But by the way, source number three, I just pointed out. If you didn't remember that it, there is in the story of Yaakov and uh, his father, it is the G'day Izim, he is bringing the goats, it is the clothing, it is the Pasuk of Gimel, Velohi Kiru, and he didn't recognize. And over here, of course, when uh, they bring Yaakov the coat, Yaakov says, Vayakira, and he, and he recognizes the, at least he thinks he recognizes, he recognized the coat, but he doesn't really know what is the back and what's going on. And then you get to Perak, you know, Lamed Chet, which of course is Yehuda getting married and Yehuda having one child, a second child, a third child, and then Yehuda's wife dies. And I just want to get that Pasuk Yudbet. And it says, And he needs to be comforted. Why? Because he's lonely. He lost, he lost his wife. Again, we can understand that. Now, this whole time, Tamar has been alone. And that is, again, Yehuda's lack of, uh, of compassion, or maybe even better, his lack of empathy. Which means, where is the empathetic Yehuda feeling his father's pain, feeling her loneliness? And instead, there is this uh, self-centeredness which is just so disturbing in Yehuda's personality, and then he will try to solve his loneliness when he is seduced by this woman on the side of the road, which we know, I don't want to ruin the story if any of you didn't learn this, and I'm sure there are many, many people who went to yeshivas where they skipped this chapter, and they never, <laughs> and they, and they never learned it. I don't know if you know this, but the, the famous Rashi, the, the blue five-volume Rashi's, Zilberman Rashi's that we had growing up, he skipped all of the interesting points. Yes. He skipped any Rashi that was not appropriate for a school child. It's just not there. He skipped, he skipped those Rashi's. It was an, an edition produced for children to learn Rashi, and there are certain things that shouldn't be born. And every now and again, I, I get to certain chapters, things which I teach, and I have students looking at me, we never learned that. I said, you learned Bereshit? Yeah, we learned it many times, but we never learned that. Well, I said, well, they just put it back in. I mean, it's there. It's never been removed, and they're shocked sometimes. But over here, you know, she dresses up as a prostitute, and Yehuda sees her on the side of the road, and he hits on her, and, uh, and she, he asks for the wages, 
and she says, send me a goat. So now, you know, us, you know, we recognize and we know the story. There's something there as well. But then he actually, there's a word that I want to focus on. By the way, this is the part I've never said before, this right now. It says in Pasuk Yitzayin, Vayomer nochi ashalach g'day izim in v'tomer imtitain eravon ad shalachacha. What are you going to give me as collateral? Which means basically, uh, Yehuda, we're in a cash business over here, and uh, I don't trust people who sleep with prostitutes, right? <laughs> you know, there's not a great deal of trust over here. And, you know, what, what, and so, he's, so he, what do you want as collateral? And she says, give me your chotem, give me your p'til, and give me your mateh, which is essentially his, his, his ring, his coat, and his staff. So uh, once again, we have over here deception taking place, and you can ask, what did Yehuda do to ever deserve that somebody should deceive him to be... Dre- to be no, I'm just saying is that you, you have to look at all of these sections together. And yes, I know there have been years I only focused on the connection between Yehuda and the, and the, and the other story, but it's, you can't jump into this in the middle because it's, it's a three-part play, as it were. It's the same story being told, yes, in completely different ways, but if I'll say it again, what did Yehuda ever do to deserve to somebody to dress up in a way, just think about that. She's now dressing up like Yaakov was dressing up, and therefore her identity isn't known. And and the goat then becomes a part of the story, which will become a part of the deception as well. And then the you know deception and the coat and the dressing and the and the goat. So I'm saying, in a certain extent, there is, shall we say, a great deal of karma over here. That's really what it is. There there is a, a great deal of karma which is taking place, but then we get to the moment when Yehuda realizes who she really is and what has happened and what his responsibility is, and she then, Pasach uses the exact same words that he had used before, and I presume it was him because he was in charge of the sale, when he says to Yaakov, do you recognize this coat? And Vatomer in Pasuk do you recognize whose this is? And then Vayakir Yehuda. I mean, and, that, and, that, and that's where the change takes place. Which means here's the first time that there's an admission on Yehuda's part. And let's also recognize that changes don't necessarily take in place in one day, but then a child is born and that child is parents. Meaning that this child, and let's, let's understand something, in, in, this, in a way which is similar to the birth of Reuven, where Yaakov doesn't know who he's sleeping with, over here you have that theme again, where Peretz is produced when Reuven, sorry, when Yehuda doesn't know who he's sleeping with. And this ends up producing Peretz, and I'll say it again, Ben Partsi, and this is going to lead all the way to, uh, to Melech HaMashiach. Now, a whole bunch of the points that I made are in the Midrash Rabbah, in Source 5 and 6 and 7, in, including the idea of Mashiach coming into it in Source number 7. Um, God is made to say in, at the end of 7, Amar Kodesh Baruch Yehuda, Tarimita ba'avicha b'bigdei izim, chayecha shetamar mirameh b'cha b'gdei izim. Just as you try to deceive your father, she will deceive you. The the point in source number eight, and this is a comment by the Tzur Amor, back in Perikav Zion, Toldot, where where, Yo, where Yaakov dresses up as Esav, trying to fool his father, and that's the reason why that ended up coming around, as it were, to bite Yaakov, because that's what he did, which means that connection is there. In source number nine, you can see the various connections are expressed in the Zohar, in the Seir, and so on, and, and, and connecting the Ketonet, it connects the two different sections very, very uh, clearly. So in the time that we have left, I, I, I want to try to uh, point out a couple of more things and get back to where we began. In uh, source number 10, we have a new Yehuda. This is a Yehuda who turns to his father and says, we have to go back. We have to get food. We need to do something or everyone's going to die. This is a Yehuda who takes responsibility. And instead of being an angel of death or almost death or selling Yosef, now he becomes this angel of life. I need to, we need to bring life. But Yom Yehuda el Yisrael. And by the way, again, recognize it's Yisrael. 
אביו, שלך הנער איתי, send בנימין with me, ונקום ונלחב, and we're going to go, ונחיה ולא נמות, and we're going to live, we're not going to die. גם אנחנו, גם אתה, גם תפנו. We can't give up, there is a way, there is something we can do. אנוכי אערבנו. So that's, that's what I'm adding this, this year. And he says that, that I will be the collateral, which means earlier the collateral was during a, a, a seedy uh, affair taking place along the side of the road, and over here, Yehuda's standing up and talking about collateral. And I, I believe that the collateral over here really represents the, the tshuva in the sense of Yehuda taking responsibility. Because, again, it, I don't have to say that. I'm just saying is that the fact that it's the same word that appeared in, you know, while the problem was taking place, and over here it's part of the solution, I can't ignore, and I believe that it really is a part of it. Um, afterwards, in Pasuk Yud Aleph, Yaakov then turns around and says, okay, okay, if you're going to go back, because we know there's complication, there's the whole thing with the money and so on, so v'yom aleim Yisrael avihim, imkein eflazot asukachu mizmeret ha'aretz b'kleihim, go take from, you know, the good of the land of Israel, v'ridu le'ishmincha, bring him a gift, which, by the way, is the same term which is used when he sends the gifts off to Esav, which means trying to make up with the brother, and over here you also, he doesn't even know that he's trying to make up, telling Yehuda how to make up with your brother, so it's also becomes an interesting subtext. And again, I'm going to insist, all of this becomes this tangled web that we're just a little bit untangling today. Uh, and he says, bring ma'at tzri ma'at dvash nachot velot botnim mushkedim. And he identifies a couple of different things. Um, the English here, this is Ari Kaplan's translation, their father said, take some of the land's famous product in your baggage, a little balsam, a little honey, some gum, resin, pistachio nuts, and almonds. So one of the things which occurred to me over here was to compare the, the various other times that we have a list of things, and I just want to go back now to when Yosef was sold. When Yosef was sold, this is back in source number two. Yes. Yes. So go back to Pasuk Kafei. Some of those elements are the same. Chazal pick up on, not that connection I just now told you, but I think that, that they absolutely are connected. So therefore, Yosef goes down you know, with these kinds of spices, and now his father sending him these kinds of spices, which for Yo- Yo- Yosef is a dream interpreter. Just remember this. For Yosef, every single element is significant, and everything is read into, and Yosef's going to get it. Which means, whenever I succeed in unraveling something in the Yosef story, all that I know is I got, a, I got you know, one thousandth of what Yosef saw over here, because he, he understands everything, and he is the interpreter of dreams, and he reveals the secret. He's Tzofnat Paneach. So he knows what's going on, but let's just try to... There's a message. There's a message behind this, but give me... Give me a second now. In just source number 11, we really articulated without reading it. It's a Tosefta that says, Yehuda becomes Yehuda when he makes his admission. And not only that, then he becomes worthy for Malchut. Which means that's the... It's not just that Peretz is going to... No, this is going to be the line of, of David and eventually of, uh, of Mashiach. The Mechilta, in source 13, which is a pretty old source in terms of Midrashim, it says, Now, recall that Yosef is here referred to as a tzaddik, which was part of what I was trying to point out from the beginning. Sha'alu Yerad Hayadid Ahuv Hazeh Ima Aravim, that Yosef is taken down with the Ishmaelim. Lo Yumimitimotomi Reach Gmalim Reach Itaron. Normally, the kinds of things that they would be in the camels and the, the smell should have been enough to kill you. Elizimenlo Kadishbarachush Sakimim Leim Bisamim Bechorechanim Tovim. And rather, there's all of this wonderful smell. And by the way, also recognize that when Yaakov goes in dressed up as Esav, it's part of what Yitzchak is seeking out, the reach 
the reach bani, the reach. Again, the reach of the goats. No, he smells something else. He smells ganei. But again, just realize that the reach is over near. Oh, and I hear the question is going to be, you know, how far to go with all of this. In source fifteen, Rashi points out the same thing. Um, the lot in right is uh, also scharen tzadikim. He's really taking it from there, and so on. Also notice, notice the continuation continuation of Rashi Utsri in the bottom line in Rashi. Saraf hanotef me atzei haktaf. Some of you should recognize that line. You say it sometimes. Vuhu nataf hanimne im samenei haktoret. It's part of the Ketoret, which is also just took us to an interesting place, because the Ketoret is this thing that brings, you know, forgiveness. And now Yosef is the tzaddik who's being taken down. And there is this good smell, the smell of the Ketoret over here, which actually positions Yosef to some extent, as, as bizarre as this may sound, almost as part of this korban, which is about to be offered. And Yosef is the tzaddik and he's the korban. And I know you're going to trouble me with certain references, but it doesn't trouble me. So source number 16 is the Meishiloach. I almost started with this. And I said to myself, if I bring the Meishiloach, I'm going to have to make fun of myself because I always make fun of people who bring the Meishiloach because essentially he's one of these sources who is so difficult that any people bring it just so they can say anything they want to say. And... Uh, it's here. The question is what we're going to do. By the way, part of what he goes is that this was destiny, and to the extent it was destiny, that, Yos, that Yehuda really didn't have a, uh, a much of a, of a choice about this. But let's instead go to Rav Nachman in Source 18 and 19. Sorry, Source 18, right, we'll look at 18, 19, and 20. Um, that a person needs to connect to the tzaddik. This is pure chasidud and definitely the chasidud of uh, Rabbi Nachman. The, the, the tzaddik knows how to da- pray properly. He called tzaddik v'tzaddik hubechinat Moshe Moshiach. Because every tzaddik is like Moshe, who's the master of prayer, and, uh, and Moshe, who's the anointed one, and in a sense, Moshiach, uh, which is what he says. He then goes on to say, Ad ki shiloh da Moshe. Shiloh, of course, is referring to something else, but we're going to leave Moshiach Ukolo Kolat Filot. Ze Yehe Moshiach Morach Vadain. Now, that phrase, Moshiach Morach Vadain, is what we need to understand. It's the Gemara is in source 19, and it says that Moshiach has the ability of judging based on sense of smell. That Moshiach can smell something out and know what's right and know what's wrong. If you look at 20, Rav Amar de Morach Vadain, and we'll skip a little bit, and it says, it talks about Bar Kochva, and it says that he claimed he was Mashiach, and they said, it says about Mashiach, he knows how to judge by smell, they tested if he can do it, and he couldn't. And you can follow the rest of the Gemara. In 20, it's one of the students of Rabbi Nachman, Rabbi, right? Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Natan, Rabbi Nasan, and he comes back to our Pasuk, which is why we had to take that little detour. And that Yosef is also like Mashiach. And, and, and of course we know that in tradition there are two Mashiachs. There's Mashiach ben Yosef, Mashiach ben David, which is actually what's being played out over here, where one of them is coming from this place of complete righteousness and the other one's coming from this place of, uh, of, of teaching the world to fix themselves after being entangled in all kinds of problems and mistakes. I, I just, if we're already getting to Reach and the Reach Nichoach and the Ketoret and, and so on, so there's another element there which is interesting. First of all, let me say this, because we're not going to get into this as much. I'll say this for the, for the Balei Kore who are listening. And that is that many a Balei has noticed, maybe, maybe even some others listening, that when you get to the section of Yosef, there is an absolute memory or echo of the Esther story, of Megillah Esther. It's, it's Trump, it's uh, words... It's theme, 
the beautiful Jew who's in the who's undercover in the palace is the same thing, and it was deliberate in my mind. In my opinion, it was deliberate the way the Megillah Esther is being written and is setting up Esther in a certain sense as a uh, as Yosef. Of course, they both have different names as well, and her real name is Hadassah, and Hadassah goes back to the sense of smell, something which we've spoken about before. But Yosef also, therefore, now we see, has this connection with the sense of smell, which maybe was much more than we had imagined, which now we're seeing is one of these elements which is connected to Mashiach ben Yosef. There's this other thing which is a little crazy, which you never would have noticed until t- we got to this point, and that is that when Yosef has his dream, the second dream, it's the Shemesh Yareach and the Kochavim, where his brothers shouldn't have been so troubled. He, he sees them as Kochavim, right? He sees them as stars. But um, part, part of actually what, what bothered his father was, you know, am I and your mother really going to come and your brother's really going to bend down? And the thing about the mother is what Rashi identifies, what troubles him, your mother's not alive. What are you talking about? This, you know, every dream has some shtut in it. So uh, just look at, and, and I, by the way, I was looking for this. So don't ask me why, but I was looking for this. But look at the Mitsudat David in source number 21. Yereach, which is the moon, Miloshon Reach. It's connected to the sense of smell. You're right, it's the same letters. Yoreach and Reach are the same letters. But it's saying more than that, that there's some kind of a connection. And let's now look at the Shemi Shmuel. <laughs> You know, we consider sometimes in uh, Chazal as if Yitzchak was actually all offered. So I've pointed out a number of times that on the way to the Akedah, Avram should have remembered that his father tried to offer him as well, mm-hmm. and somehow miraculously he was saved, and that should give him at least the hope or understanding that somehow Yitzchak is going to be saved. But nonetheless, we look at it as if Yitzchak was actually offered. But over here, we have an expression that we look at it as if Avram was actually offered in that Offering, he was thrown in because it says again. This is the medrash. Hareach reichol shel Avram Avinu ole mikivshon haesh. That there, that again. There's a reach nichoach coming out. Reach shel Chanani Mishal Vazaria ole mikivshon haesh. Reach deroshel Shmad. The Jews that were killed, God accepts this as a offering. Hanu shebechol elot safavim abid Hashemi reishad acharipi me Noach. Right, all the way from the beginning, Parshat Noach is where we find that Noach offers the offering, and then the Tereach Nichoach, and so on, and that creates the Brit. The fact that we sometimes refer to the moon as the Yareach, it's connected to the Reach. That at some point, the moon will be healed and it will be fixed, and it won't be diminished in any way. That the Jewish people, who at times the, that they look as if they're suffering or they're down, they are compared to the moon, and the moon will somehow one day be healed. That God looks and God knows. And I I felt that this could be used back in Yosef as he's traveling down. First of all, it's fascinating if his father says, but your mother's dead, but his mother is the Areach, and the Areach is connected to the Reach, and maybe Yosef is there with this good smell, that maybe his mother's always with him. Maybe that's really a part of it. His mother, is, his mother really is always with him. Yes, his mother's no longer there, but his mother is with him. He wasn't a young child. I mean, he remembers his mother, and, and, and she's with him. And she was full of self-sacrifice. And she, because of the good of her sister, she withdrew, and, and she controlled herself, and she sat on the sidelines. And now as Yosef's being carried away, and Yosef's being there, but there is this reach, which means uh, on the one level, there is this sense of korban being taking place over here and on and on this other sense there is this person who's with him who's no longer with him but that his mother who's with him I, i'm going to say that and just going on this connection of the areach and the and the and the reach and this is yosef at Sadiq. this is yosef at Sadiq who who's on his way down to egypt and he's going to constantly be misjudged and put in bad situations. And every single time he's going to emerge from this as this person who's a tzaddik. 
And at the end of history, we're going to have these two, as this is where we began. We're going to be having the, and that's, so again, as we saw from the very beginning, that's all this is all about. All this is about is Yosef and, and, and Yehuda, but each of them, who they are emerges. Yosef will emerge as this unbelievable tzaddik who's this reach nichoach and there's this korban taking place and the sacrifice taking place. Again, just use that whole Esther story including that the, there's a sacrifice there taking place and maybe a deeper level of understanding why the writers of Megillah and Esther so much wanted to make it sound as much as the story of Yosef as possible. Because there is this sacrificial act taking place, which is part of what Am Yisrael needs, but there's also this other element which Am Yisrael needs, and this other element is, of course, this element also coming from the side of Yehuda, this, uh, if you want to call it this, uh, this person who, who gets himself into terrible trouble because of bad decision-making, but somehow has the moral fortitude, eventually, that's also, I think, a very important lesson, is that sometimes we're too, early, we're, we're too willing to judge somebody earlier in a story because, oh, look how much they failed. And Yehuda fails. He fails. He's our brother. Let's sell him. No. He's our brother. Let me bring him home. He's our brother. Look, what are we doing? It's the wrong conclusion. Where when his first son dies, that he doesn't see karma. Or when his second son dies. Or when his wife dies. Meaning how, and it's fascinating because if I'm right, that, oh, he saw a sign. Look, it's Yishmael. God is speaking to me. It's great. When God doesn't speak to me, he hears it. When God speaks to me, he doesn't hear it. So that also tells us something about people's ability to hear and to interpret signs. Don't we interpret the signs that we want to interpret? And, and right, every single time, and I hate to say this, but every single time, God forbid, there's a tragedy that happens, some rabbi gets up and says it's because of this. I guarantee you that he didn't think of it afterwards, that this, he was waiting for the tragedy to prove that he was right. Oh, look at this. Women have to, it's always women, by the way, have to stop speaking Lashonara, they have to dress more modestly, they have to do this, they have to do that, and that's why all of this happened. Or the one who wants to talk about Chil Shabbat, or you want to talk about David and Shul, that's why all of the, the, these things happen. So it's interesting in our ability to interpret signs. Yehuda, Yehuda I, I don't know how you can miss this, but he misses the signs that he's supposed to read, and I believe he misinterprets the signs that he does read, and, but, but eventually, that's the point. Because if, if, if you're looking at the trajectory of Yehuda's life, you know, there's at some point that all of us would say, just forget about it, give up on it. There, there's an interesting comment that was in the, in, that I skipped, which was in the Meishi Loach, and he says something which I think, I think was absolutely fascinating. But he says that the Achilles heel, as it were, of Yehuda is Arayot, is sexual, sexual sins. And he goes, and that's David Melech, and that's Shlomo. He goes, he goes, but the Achilles heel of Yosef will be Avodazar. It's Avodazar. In, in terms of Yosef's, Yosef's his um, Yeravam and others, the, the, the descendants that are going to come out of Yosef, it's going to be Avodazar, which, which, is, which is just a very interesting comment that, that, that there are these two great souls and there are Achilles heels. In Yosef's life, you don't see any of this. Yosef, other than they may have seen him as a god at some point in Egypt, right? And, and that, that is a possibility. You don't, see, you don't see this. Am Yisrael needs, now you can decide how you want to put this. We need, we need our tzaddikim and we need our bali tshuva, real bali tshuva. We need the fake ones as well. But we need tzaddikim, we need bali tshuva. We need our chesidim, we need our misnachtim. We need the people that do every single thing right along the way. We need these people who have this incredible amount of power and charisma who maybe sometimes mess up but have that moral fortitude to at some point stop and say, no, someone else is more right, I- I'm wrong and they're right. That, that, that takes a great amount of personality. That is the light of Mashiach. That is the light of Mashiach. And we started with lightness and darkness. That's what he was referring to is in Midrash that says, we skipped it here along the way, where it says, where was God during the sale of Yosef? It says that God was busy. Boro oro shomelech Mashiach. He's creating that light. And that light, the first, the first way it comes out is in Peretz. And Peretz could have said the same thing. Hold it. My father never wanted, a, he never wanted me. He, he wasn't, wasn't married. And, and the whole thing. But no, it's this ability of taking bad situations and turning them around and fixing them. Again, that's the point. Yehuda, David, who make mistakes, but they recognize their mistakes. That's the power of Mashiach, is to come in. Yes, we need tzaddikim who don't make mistakes, but sometimes we want to kill them, and that's the problem. But we, 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 we the world needs 
this power that un, that understands, you know, that was wrong and that was wrong and that was wrong. And we could be at, on a trajectory which is absolutely devastating, but to be able to hit the brakes on that trajectory and to stop and then to turn around and say, no, you know, there's been something wrong over here and we can fix it. That's what takes this hugeness of spirit. That is what it says that God created in the very, very beginning. That spirit hovering above was the spirit of Mashiach to be able to, you know, in this whole fight and light and darkness, that spirit is standing there from the very beginning. And that's what ends up emerging in this week's Parsha. When Yehuda, we would not have expected how this story would continue. But now Yehuda's waited to turn around and says, you know what? I'll be the collateral. I'll take care of this. I'm going to fix this. Let's choose life. And that's a different Yehuda that we had ever known before.